Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to global news in social artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of chatting with someone who's building a more humane world uh, from the inside out. And today, my guest is uh, George Smith from Columbia, Missouri. Uh, I'll introduce him various ways during the hour, but uh, we'll start by saying that he is the Curator's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Biological Sciences at uh, the University of Missouri. Welcome, George. Thank you. Uh, it's a privilege to be on your show. And a privilege to have you. Uh, I heard about you, of course, as probably the world heard about you uh, a couple of years ago. How's life today? You're uh, a retired professor, as I am. Uh, what's your day like? Uh, well, um, you know, uh, first, uh, wake up in the morning, get out of my nighttime pajamas and get into my daytime pajamas. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and then, you know, after dinner, get out of my daytime pajamas into my nighttime pajamas. But that's not true at all. <laughs> of course. Uh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm uh, pretty active in a number of areas. Still doing a little bit of science. I don't, during the pandemic, uh, as you can imagine, I haven't been into the... Um, university very much though i'm going down i did i have i am retired uh i retired in 2015 but i still have a laboratory <laughs> there that i have to clean out and for a science laboratory especially one that's been active that was active for 40 years that's a pretty big job so um <clears throat> starting um you know sometime in the middle of this of uh, this coming month i'm going to be in there a lot <laughs> Right. to uh, shut down the, uh, the laboratory. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> I have many other interests. There's a, you know, a little bit of science writing uh, and lecturing, especially about the uh, RNA uh, vaccines that have made such a uh, difference in this uh, pandemic. Uh, that's, a, that's a subject that I have been, uh, I've talked all over the world in, in taking Zoom International Airlines to many places all over the world. <laughs> And um, the and, and the economics of, of um, the like the economic justice we could say in the development of drugs in general, not just uh, vaccines. That's a, I think that's a very important topic that I've been um, very active in. And uh, you may have heard that I'm also a an activist for um, freedom, justice, and equality in Palestine. Mm-hmm. which they have been denied for 73 years. And um, so I'm, uh, I support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions uh, movement uh, against Israel until it meets its obligations, its clear obligations under international law and any sort of international decency. Uh, that's another important thing. And then there are any number of other causes that are, like related to that, although I'm not really active in this, but I'm very interested in it. I read a lot about it is the settler colonial regime in Palestine closely resembles, though a hundred years later, than what happened in the um, Louisiana Purchase 
uh, region of our country, which was systematic removal of the indigenous people, taking over their land and, um, and using their land for the exclusive use of settlers. Now our settler colonial um, country, America, was um, was accompanied by, uh, I mean, a huge level of death among the in, uh, indigenous people. Much of it was due to unintentional deaths because of their lack of immunity to European diseases, but some of it was very intentional, especially in California, like the 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 removal of Indians in the in the dispossession of Indians in in uh, the California territory really amounted to a genocide. That was a true genocide, uh, comparable to the um, to the Holocaust. Although fewer numbers were involved, of course. At, it was much more sparsely um, inhabited than uh, the Jew, uh, Jewish uh, population in Eastern Europe. Well, I've, I've heard numbers upward of six million uh, indigenous people in, in this land that uh, met their end. So maybe the numbers are not too far off. Well, I think altogether all, all the, uh, the number of deaths of indigenous people in the new world in the, in the americas uh, mm -hmm. was probably closer to um, 70 million 70 million many people think there were 100 million people and i don't think that was an exaggerated estimate mm -hmm. uh, inhabiting at north and south america maybe it's just north america but it was a very populous area there's almost no land west of the um, of the mississippi uh, including in the louisiana purchase that wasn't it wasn't uh, occupied. Mm -hmm. It wasn't land of some region. In our in our area, uh, it, it was it was belonged or I don't know if you could say belonged, but this is the place where the Osage na Nation lived, and our, our land had been stolen from them by completely corrupt, fraudulent uh, treaties, uh, mm -hmm. especially the Treaty of eighteen twenty five. And we're living on the on the on their land right, right now. So, in that uh, line of thinking, the, the Gaza Strip would be sort of like a reservation. Well, I would say that the the Gaza Strip now, where about two million people are crowded into a an area the size of the the city of Philadelphia, not its suburbs, but the city of Philadelphia. It's more it's more populous than Philadelphia. And virtually all the uh, the agricultural land of the Gaza Strip is is unusable because of because much of it lies close to the border with Israel. Uh, it's tightly controlled by Israel. Uh, Israel destroyed the airport. It um, it's, has not allowed uh, the development of a port, even though it's right on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they control the population residency. They control all the area. Well, with the with the connivance of the dictatorship in Egypt, they they control all the entrances uh, to uh, into uh, the Gaza Strip, including the, the entrance by the sea. Strictly controlled. Many things can't come in. Building materials is another. I mean, the Gaza Strip is subject to periodic assaults by 
Israel. These are not wars with Hamas. They are assaults with almost no ability of the people of Gaza to defend themselves. I mean, they make a try. They have uh, dug these tunnels under all of the, much of the Gaza Strip and, and very courageous soldiers can jump up out of these. If, if Israel uh, dares to make a land invasion in, in the Gaza Strip, uh, these very courageous soldiers will pop up out of these uh, uh, tunnels and uh, with, uh, with, you know, pretty primitive ar armaments and surprise them and kill them, you know, in the, uh, the <laughs> assault of 2014, they killed 67 soldiers. Almost everyone that every Israeli that was killed in that assault uh, was uh, a soldier that had that invaded invaded the Gaza Strip. <laughs> anyway, I would I would say that that's more like a concentration camp. Okay. The, 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 the first concentration camps were during the Boer War in um, South Africa, and uh, they were a place to warehouse people that you didn't want. Uh, in this case, it would be the Boers, the, the British, uh, warehouse the Boer, Boer people that the, the, the British didn't want there anymore. <laughs> uh, but you don't dare kill them outright. They don't, you don't dare have a, a massacre, a, a, a wholesale massacre. That, that's what the Gaza Strip is like now. The, the, uh, the unemployment rate is 50%. And what employment there is is very meager. And they have, you know, in good times, about 12 hours of electricity a day. Uh, not much electricity. Uh, there's almost no, very few people in Gaza have potable water that, that, that really they should drink, but they have no choice. It's a cruel concentration camp. Uh, it's, it's not like the concentration camps in, in um, Poland. No, it's not like that. It, it's not a, they're, they're not uh, death factories, <laughs> nothing like that kind of concentration camp. But they are extremely cruel concentration camps that Israel imposes on, on those two million Palestinians, and that we in the United States um, uh, help to help Israel do that. We, we make sure that they're not accountable in international fora. We contribute about four billion dollars worth of weapons every year to a country that's something like the 16th richest country in the world in terms of per capita GDP. Oh, I'm really off on, a, on, my, on my soapbox, but that, that's something that just really just makes my blood boil that we, that we would be so complicit in that. All right. Uh, well, if you've just tuned in, I'm uh, Dick Dalton, and this is Glocal News in Social Artistry, and my guest is George Smith, uh, a retired professor over at Mizzou, and uh, I should also mention uh, you're the husband of Margie Sable, who's also, uh, I think you met at Mizzou, is that correct? We did. We met in the swimming pool, <laughs> and, we, and we still have the green tank suit that she was wearing. That's kind oh. of a memento of our meeting of a yesterday wow i kind of remember when that swimming pool was first built 
Uh, it was shortly before you arrived, I think, isn't it? Uh, yes, I arrived in uh, 1975, and I, I I don't I wasn't here when it was built. It was, it was already built when I came here, but I don't think it was it was uh, uh, very um, uh, many years before that. It was the natatorium. When did you come to Columbia, Dick? Uh, when I was two years old, that would be oh, uh, 1946. <laughs> 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 I grew up in Columbia and went through the public school system and uh, did my first year of college at Mizzou. Ah. Transferred down to SMU in Texas. And when I realized what I was going to do with my life, uh, it was coming back to Mizzou and, and focusing on health education. So uh-huh. I came back in the early 70s after military time and finished up in 1980 uh, before I went to teaching. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, so we were there at the same time, just uh, uh, not in the same crowd. You well, you, you were too young for me, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. I've... Although, actually, you're older than Margie. <laughs> there you go. So we were just talking about your passion for the justice or the lack of justice uh, for humanity and, and focused on on the Palestinians in particular, uh, this can't be something that just uh, came up in your life recently. Uh, can you go back? How far back can you go when you were thinking about the rights of others uh, as as an issue? Well, um, I, I guess I, I was pretty naive when I was young, uh, including in, in college. <laughs> Me too. And... Um, I was very influenced by the uh, by the Friends, by the Quakers, because I went I went to Haverford College, which in the, at that time was an actual Quaker college. It it, it uh, separated from the Friends officially uh, just after I graduated in 1963, but um, the uh, but it, it still is still to to this day is highly influenced by the by the Friends. So the friends, as you know, are uh, really committed to nonviolence, to social justice in many ways. I went to um, a number of, they were called weekend work camps. Uh, and maybe this is kind of like a white privilege type of thing, but, it, but anyway, the kids from, from Haverford College, um, a few of which, a few of whom were black, but not many, <laughs> Uh, would go for a weekend in um, in um, Center City, uh, Philadelphia, and do things like um, help repair, clean up a, a church or uh, some um, uh, you know community center, a school, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then we sit, uh, we'd uh, sleep together in a in a, a um, housing and uh, talk about what we were doing, that that kind of thing. So that was kind of a social justice. Uh, I would yeah. say that I was not nearly as brave since I, I wasn't raised Quaker or anything. I wasn't nearly as brave or as outspoken as my friends who were, who did uh, grow up with the friends. Um, but that certainly influenced me. And um, I thought that I was going to be a <clears throat> inner city uh, teacher, high school teacher after graduation, 
Um, and I tried that for a while for half for half a year, but I decided that was that was really too hard work for me. <laughs> that was it was a very very difficult type of thing type of uh, of work, and I decided I, I I'm not good at this. I I, I think this is a cop out really because because I, I I have met people uh, my age who stuck it out, you know who who stuck the whole thing out and you know i really admire them and i think that in a way they 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 may well have had a more fulfilling life than i did although everyone you know would know about my life would say oh well what a fulfilling life you had but you know i mean these are people that 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 had a commitment and they stuck with it and i i really admire them anyway I, this is by way of saying i don't say think that i had an outstanding commitment to justice and, and all that, because I certainly valued an easier life than mm -hmm. than I had imagined myself cut out for. But I was a war resistor in the um, during the, the uh, Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. I mean, I turned in. I was too old for the draft, but I turned in my draft card very visibly. And uh, in those days, you were drafted if you did that. And I refused the draft also very visibly, you know, I made sure that I was healthy. Uh, so that I would go in there and then refuse in front of all the other kids that were that were being drafted at the same time. N nothing came of that. It's, uh, you know, I, I was imagining spending, you know, several years in jail as a result of that, which several people in my cohort did. Mm -hmm. But just at that time, there was a Supreme Court decision that said that that the um, Selective Service uh, Administration couldn't use drafting someone as a punishment for not complying with the Selective Service system. So. Mm -hmm since my crime was refusing the draft <laughs> but since that it was a result of, of an illegal drafting um all those cases like mine were were dropped and it, and and i'm sure the johnson administration also uh realized that this is really bad news because the people like like me that did this uh, were having a big influence and and i mean i was convinced i was recruited, you might say, by the example of people like that. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the Johnson administration said, this is bad politics to draft these people and uh, and then put them in jail when they refuse, refuse the draft because it's a big propaganda side, uh, propaganda coup for the against the war. Right. <laughs> I should say also, I, sh I really should point this out that I'm an army brat. My father graduated from West Point in 1930, wow. Hoover administration. The Hoover administration thought that the best way to counter the um, the crash, you know, the uh, <laughs> the depression was to downsize the government. Of course, that's completely, utterly, utter economic nonsense. Uh, so um, the Hoover administration allowed all the graduates of West Point to leave the army without any obligation because they didn't want a big army. <laughs> anyway, when the war broke out after Pearl Harbor in December of uh, 1941, that was a few months after my birth, um, uh, my father rejoined the ar regular army and um, stayed in the army to the end of his career. So I was an army brat. <laughs> Uh, but my parents were sympathetic with us. They they were, even though they were an army family, they they absolutely 
very far from you know like disowning me or anything like that they were sympathetic to to this and i i think that they had they, they had a that modified their view of what the army is about what the military forces are about and i won't say that either they or i are utterly against army being the army or being uh, or, or the military but i think they and i and all my siblings <laughs> are all um you know re- realize that we are a hugely over militarized society nothing like israel but but even we we're so few you know like something like seven percent of the people of the right age are actual veterans very few (laughs) i mean so not many people actually are in the army but um in, in the military but um it, we still use the military way too much. <laughs> so I mean, we have what 150 bases or more around the country, around the world. To... I I believe it's more like 800, and oh. uh, and uh, they're in about 70 countries. Now, not, not all of these bases are really what we would call a base. I mean, they're they're outposts and things. They're they're small operations, but some very big operations, and they're in 70. Uh, countries, you know, so we pay rent to 70 countries to have these bases. By the way, guess how many China has? Make make a guess how many bases outside their country China has. Well, I'm just going to guess zero. <laughs> well, there's four. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're much four? more militaristic. Than you. <laughs> in four different places, they have uh, outp- uh, outposts or, or bases in uh, outside the boundaries of China. They spend quite a bit of money on their uh, on the military. I mean, it's maybe 30% of what we spend, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it's, it's not insignificant, but um, it's not to build bases in foreign countries. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that they look at, the, they look at their own, at their own perimeters. They want to, to protect their own perimeters, their own vital interests. I think that's the same with Russia too. I mean, Russia, we, we think of them as, as this really aggressive country, but, I, but bas- basically they want, to, they want to protect, the government wants to protect itself mm-hmm. and the country, and their concern is right on their borders. Mm-hmm. I was listening uh, to KOPN recently, and uh, Richard Wolff was one of the speakers, and he was talking about how the U.S. and Russia both have uh, our GDPs have either stagnated or gone way down, whereas China's has gone way up. And it seems kind of ludicrous to think about all of the power we think we have or Russia might have when our wages are, are stagnant, our, we have poverty all over the place. Uh, I don't know. There just seems to be a real disconnect between the way. We're well, 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 that's right. And um, and and China, I mean, in, in terms of per capita um, GDP, China is way less than way behind us. But what China has done, what their economic system has done, um, with, without the benefit of democracy. <laughs> Or, or maybe without the hindrance of democracy, have been have lifted 
uh, hundreds of millions of Chinese from really abject poverty to a respectable uh, level of life. <laughs> hundreds of millions. And of course, they have a, quite a few billionaires as well. <laughs> so, so a few Chinese have, have become very, very rich. They've also been, um, they've been very ambitious to develop the under, underdeveloped, you know, what we would call the left behind in the, in the U.S., the flyover country and stuff. So one would be uh, Xinjiang province in the, in the, uh, in the West where, where the Uyghurs live, but other people too as, as well. So one of the um, China's government's ambition is to uh, develop these country, these uh, um, provinces that are very poor and uh, that, that have been very poor. And um, that's the context in which this conflict with the Uyghurs ha has developed because the Belt and Road Project, which is, you know, it's kind of like the modern Silk Road, but with the high technology and so on, China's invelt, uh, uh, invested tremendously in that. And that's an necessarily involved the the uh, Xinjiang province because of the Belt Road, you know, part, part major branches of the Belt Belt Road, uh, the the Belt and Road would go through uh, Xinjiang pro province. So it's in the context of that ambition to develop that this. Um, it, it's not clear, really. I think what's happened happened to the Uyghurs. I, I, I'm a little skeptical, as are a few um, uh, commentators, about the whether there really is a, you know, like a, a, a near gen, genocide or concentration camps in Xinjiang province. But it, no doubt that uh, you know chinese politics will ride, ride roughshod over uh, the will of the people if they want to i mean that 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 happens all the time in china just think of Tiananmen uh square <laughs> well if you just tuned in uh you're listening to glocal news and social artistry uh, i am the host dick dalton and my guest today is george smith um the uh husband of margie sable a, a long time KOPN uh, supporter and uh, well, she was the brazen hussy. Actually, <laughs> for, she she had her own program on KOPN, <laughs> the brazen hussy. And what what a what a great name for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, she came over from St. Louis, I hear, uh, because of KOPN uh, starting up as a community radio station back in the yes. early seventies. Yes, she did. She did indeed. Uh, so she took a job here, which is, you know, coming from St. Louis. This is um, kind of a major city and uh, with all its faults and its problems and so on. And it was also uh, just a, a vibrant community that she belonged to there and then came to what must have looked like the sticks <laughs> to her at the time to Columbia, though I think she realized soon on that it really wasn't the sticks. But one thing that convinced her, I think, that it wasn't the sticks was community radio here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I met her just uh, on a Zoom KOPN committee meeting just the other day. That's, that's 
I thought I thought you were going to say that you met her in 1979 on a Zoom meeting. Uh, presume uh, you presume. <laughs> yeah. Well, when she dropped uh, in introducing herself, she dropped that note that uh, she met this guy at the swimming pool and he asked her to coffee. Uh, oh, that was George Smith. <laughs> That's when my alarm went off and said, "Oh." Oh, George Smith, this is the guy I've been trying to get a hold of for this show. <laughs> so she had a lot to do with us getting together today, and I appreciate that. Uh, she went on and uh, started into the social work, sociology, which of her... Social work. Uh, so she became a professor in social work and uh, ultimately was the director of the School of Social Work. It's a school, not a department. And uh, and so she had that job until she retired. In fact, she retired and then she stayed on <laughs> to continue um, di directing the School of Social Work for another year after that. Mm -hmm. So we both retired in 2015, but she didn't really retire. She stayed on. Actually, all three of us retired in 2015. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that was so my year, too. That was the buyout. <laughs> <laughs> well... For me, it was I was at Lincoln University, and oh, you were at Lincoln. Oh, it, yeah, it was, okay. It was my time. I'd been there thirty years, and it was a good time to go. So uh, I, I'm missing a step, though. Here, let's see. You graduated in '63 out east, and somehow uh, did Harvard come knocking on your door, or did you uh, have to go bang on their door? Well, I, I told you about my aborted career as a as a high school teacher. Yes. So, yes. so I, um, I I did that uh, right after college. But when I decided that wasn't for me, then I um, I got a, a job as a technician at uh, the Fox Chase uh, Cancer Center in Philadelphia, oh. and um, and I had in mind that I would go to graduate school in um, biology, which is what I studied in college, mm -hmm. and go on to an academic career. Mm -hmm. And that was really enforced, <laughs> reinforced uh, while I was at uh, a graduate, uh, a, um, a, a technician, a lowly technician. I mean, this, this is the lowest scientific job in a, in a research facility. Uh, but in uh, at the uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center, the um, Every uh, afternoon, they had a tea to which everyone in in the center was invited. Everyone, you know, could come and have tea and talk, and and that included the highest ranking professors and the lowliest of the lows of the scientific staff like me, wow. and the tech, you know, the custodians and everything. And so I I met some really eminent people and this. I mean, this really enforced my my um, my decision to change my career from what I imagined it had been in college, being a high school teacher, in especially in um, you know inner city schools, to a research career. And so I applied I applied to graduate schools, um, including um, the uh, a a program the in uh, medical science at Harvard Medical School. And I got into that and um, 
my I ultimately ended up in a laboratory in, in a dingy basement of the very very prominent um, um, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So that's where I did my uh, PhD work. So it was a really dreary <laughs> dreary uh, lab, but it was a, this was a storied um, a storied hospital um, and um, <clears throat> And my um, my mentor uh, Ed Haber, uh, who was actually a yeah, fled the Holocaust <laughs> um, and uh, <clears throat> ended up in the United States, but he was the youngest head of the cardiac unit uh, ever at uh, at uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital, and a really brilliant guy. So I got a, a big head start, and then. Uh, that was five years as a graduate student, and then I did five years as a postdoctoral fellow, because in experimental science, generally, uh, you don't go directly from PhD to a professorship, but you go, you have this kind of uh, advanced learning mm -hmm. where you have a mentor, you don't have to apply for grants, but you're do, you have more responsibility for your um, for your research than you do than you did as a um, uh, as a graduate student, generally, mm -hmm. and my um, my postdoctoral mentor was uh, a man named Oliver. Oh, and this was at the University of Wisconsin, oh, and uh, he he was a um, his his uh, name was Oliver Smithies, and he went on to get the Nobel Prize in two thousand and seven for um, modifying genes in uh, in people and animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, learning how to to make specific modifications to genes. You might have heard of CRISPR. Yes, sir. CRISPR, uh, so mm -hmm. CRISPR. Uh, so that's that's a new Nobel Prize. So CRISPR is the new, a much much easier way to do what my postdoctoral advisor and other colleagues managed managed to do with much more primitive to, tools mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, late. 70s and early 80s. Wow. It, it's amazing to think about the evolution of all of these disciplines and the, the understandings, because everything from something else that we knew, and in, you know, a CRISPR comes from a previous research. Uh, so, as you often say, I think I might have gotten a Nobel Prize, but I'm on big shoulders, <laughs> or lots of people had done lots of things for you to be able to get to where you got to. Well, I I, I, I think I would put it more like this: is that I, I got the Nobel Prize for um, a a biological technology, a biotechnology development called phage display. Won't describe what it is technically. Mm -hmm. But I just realized at the time, in fact, I had been thinking about it before and not in the context of Nobel Prize or anything, but I had, had sort of cataloged all the ways that I absolutely depended on hundreds of developments of other people. And also when I supposedly invented phage display, which I didn't, it had been invented multiple times by other people and, and by chance I did too, but, um, <clears throat> But I didn't realize what it was good for. I had extremely narrow uh, horizon about what it was good for. And, and I depend on other people for telling me this. 
and I've, as I've thought about this over the years, not just in the context of the Nobel Prize, but way before then, I've come to realize that advances in, in science, whether it's a scientific discovery or a technological innovation, they're, they're really um, community efforts. They, they emerge from whole global communities of scientists that interchange ideas and materials and stuff like that. Uh, so um, the Nobel Prize, I, I didn't really say it in these words in my <laughs> Nobel lecture, but I, but I, I, I implied that I didn't really deserve it because it really came from the community. Right. It was a development of the community, not only in what actually led to what I myself physically did, but also to the people that developed what I did to much greater heights with their imagination. All these things, this is how science works. I don't think anyone does, anyone can truly be said to be the discoverer or the inventor of anything. I don't think any of us deserve uh, intellectual property rights to the, to the advances we make. And this is especially true when that pro those property rights come in the form of any kind of commercial commercial property rights, like uh, patent rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because after all, almost all this research is done by, uh, with, in, by, with public funding. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't think any research, uh, anything that comes out of publicly funded research belongs to the researchers or their universities. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it didn't. Mm -hmm. This is quite a, a new development in, um, in the United States and now in the world at large, not until 1980 with the, uh, the Bayh-Dole uh, Law uh, Act in 1980, could a university pursue patent rights on something that uh, one of their professors uh, developed using public funding, using the uh, government funding? Government wouldn't allow that before 1980, but then government... Uh, uh, encouraged it. Uh, so anyway, I certainly don't think that, that uh, innovations and discoveries and so on that lead to these valuable patents, those, I, those patents really belong to the people. And I wouldn't say they belong to the people of one government either. I think they belong to the people globally. I, I mean, by rights, that's really true because these scientific communities are global. And um, so I, I, I accepted the, um, I, I said at the time, I accept the, um, the uh, Nobel Prize on behalf of the community from which Fade Display actually emerged. <laughs> yeah. Well said, beautifully said. And uh, it, it just it reemphasizes the interdependence of all of us. Yeah. We don't do anything by ourselves. <laughs> I, I like to say I don't flush the toilet by myself. You know, if if there wasn't all kinds of people that have done all kinds of things uh, to make that happen. Yeah. So, if you've just tuned in, uh, my guest is George Smith, uh, Professor Emeritus. Uh, actually, there's a long label there, Curators Distinguished a professor emeritus of biological sciences in Columbia, Missouri, uh, where you've lived since 1975. Um, 
you've got a bit of a, I don't know, a, a lifestyle reputation, I think. How do you often get around? <laughs> well, I, I didn't have a car when I, uh, I came here. I got, got around by bicycle. <laughs> and uh, so uh, Margie no longer claims this, but she thought that I married her because she had a car. <laughs> but I, I, I have just, this is not from, I, I would not say that this is a, uh, you know, like, like some kind of uh, moral commitment on my part or anything like that. It's just a matter of convenience. To me, it's, it's easier to hop on a bike and go someplace, even if it takes a little bit longer than to deal hassle with a car. And um, with old age, as my driving skills have really declined, and I'm, I don't consider myself a safe driver anymore, bicycling as commuting is, has become pretty much, uh, I, I won't say it's a necessity, but it's a major improvement in life compared to what it would be if I if I didn't get around that way. And of course we have a, we have a, um, a city which is pretty easy to get around by bicycle. I was actually on, on the uh, city commission on bicycling um, from um, 1978 to, to 1982. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so this is when the, the uh, bike, bike paths and so on were really uh, primitive, but in the ensuing years, uh, uh, Columbia's made a major um, investment in, uh, in bike paths and pedestrian paths and being able to get around uh, Columbia easily. And of course we have uh, invested and carried out the MKT spur line uh, connecting with the Katy trail. So this is, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's such a, now it's become really a quite easy town to get around in. We haven't made a, uh, uh, I came from Madison before I came here, and Madison now just has incredible uh, bike paths and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they have to, <laughs> they have to more than we, there's much more impetus there. Because uh, it, it, it's a very crowded city with a lot of traffic and so on. So it's been more of a necessity to have a bike paths. But Columbia is, I'd say, just as easy to get around as Madison, maybe easier. And of course, many of our bike paths, because we're not a very crowded city compared to Madison, we have, I mean, many of our bike paths are scenic or beautiful and um, and um, you know we have it's just a it, it's it's a graceful city to get around in by bicycle and on foot. And public transportation by buses and so on is another matter. It's a, it's a, it's a never-ending problem with a, a financial problem with the city, but the bike path uh, and the uh, pedestrian paths have been a, has been an important investment and just a. A, a shining example, a, a great ex, um, uh, aspect of uh, life in Colombia. Of course, I'm saying this from the selfish point of view as someone gets around by bicycle. <laughs> I remember when I lived at home my freshman year at Mizzou, and I had a bike, and I, I rode to classes and back, and I was way out on the west side, but 
it just seemed uh, you know, very convenient, even back in uh, 1962, to be able to do that sort of thing. So it's great. <laughs> Columbia has, has evolved in their bike friendliness, even. Yeah. Uh, are you a baritone or a bass? Or <laughs> I used to be a second bass. Uh, oh, um, wow. Uh, and uh, I am now a second tenor because <laughs> I've lost all my lo low notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a very good tenor, but uh, I've, I've, I've been in choirs for many years. Uh, <clears throat> I, I hooked up with some people, um, a, a young uh, professor and a young, young student who were married to each other. The three of us started a... Um, uh, a small singing group called, well, we didn't have a name, but we got our first gig in a few um, uh, nursing homes. We had to come up with a name. We just couldn't do it. So we we ended up calling ourselves the Ad Hoc Singers. <laughs> so the Ad Hoc Singers has evolved now to the Columbia Chorale. And actually now there's a, um, there are like seven choruses, including the Columbia Chorale. Uh, Columbia Chorale is the adult choir that um, that doesn't require audition, so you you don't have to compete to get in into it, and that's a good thing. Otherwise, I don't think I would be in it anymore. Uh, but that has uh, that has uh, you know I, that, that's continued since nineteen. Oh, that we uh, developed that in uh, nineteen seventy eight. So from nineteen seventy eight all the way to today, that's been a continuous choir. So, the, so ad hoc, I, the ad hoc group started in what you say? 78, 1978. Oh, that started in 78. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bless your heart. Wow. That's a, <laughs> a wonderful history. <laughs> yeah. So I've never been a very good sight reader, but I did have pretty good low uh, notes. So in ad hoc singers, which is uh, for the most part, just one person for a voice, like second bass is just one person, me. Yeah. Um, now, now I couldn't carry that now, but um, uh, but you know I still really much, very much enjoy singing in a in a choir, and there's something really, it it's something about singing together, just just to really inspiring, and also there's something special about music that that music does to poetry. I mean. The words in music are really important to me. Not just the sounds of the sounds, but the words that go along with it. So, I'm particularly interested in choral, choral, and vocal music in in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's been a big part of my life. But I dropped out in uh, during the. Uh, I, I will be going back this uh, fall uh -huh. for the uh, new season of the Columbia Chorale. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I dropped out during the um, during the pen the height of the pandemic. Sure. Because, well, because Margie thought it wasn't safe, and I think she was correct. Yeah. It really was. It really wasn't safe, for, and and we knew pretty early on, very early on, before really the pandemic hit the United States, that old people were much more susceptible to the uh, coronavirus than young people. So mm -hmm. we knew that this is you really dangerous for uh, and, and and we you know it was clear although we didn't know about super spreader events in the in the early days like in the in march of 2000 and uh 2020 we uh 
we certainly knew that um, that it, it was respiratory and being in a choir, you're right. respiring tremendously, right. you know, yeah. so. Speaking of uh, COVID, you started the hour talking a little bit about uh, your uh, Zoom meetings around the world on uh, RNA and the way it's been used in the vaccine. Can you uh, uh, give us confidence in the vaccine and the technology? And uh, is that part of what your work was? Uh, no, I'm not an expert in this, and it wasn't part of my work. Although, I was I was uh, trained as an immunologist. Uh, now, this is in the 1960s, so this is pretty primitive immunology at the time. But nevertheless, I I, I do I I have a, a pretty good grounding in immunology, and have kept up with the field. And of course, uh, immunology is at the core of how vaccines uh, work. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do have some claim to be not an expert, but someone that's knowledgeable in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's what's um, what attracted me to RNA vaccines <clears throat> is their prospects prospect of being what we would what's called a platform, a way of making vaccines that's immediately applicable to any uh, infectious disease, because all you need to know is the nucleotide sequence, the DNA or RNA sequence of whatever you want to immunize a person against, spike protein in the case of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Spike protein is a protein on the surface of the virus particle that's, that's absolutely required for its ability to infect cells. Mm -hmm. And to all the vaccines, almost all the vaccines, um, I mean, virtually all the vaccines are uh, vaccinate you against the spike protein. Anyway, the um, uh, the RNA vaccines, uh, you, it doesn't matter what the disease is and what the protein is. As long as you know the right nucleotide sequence, the very same process of making, of manufacturing this vaccine applies immediately. <laughs> and this was known two decades before this pandemic hit. <laughs> uh, so we knew about this this potential this aspect of uh, RNA uh, vaccines and RNA for other kinds of, of medications as well but let's just focus on vaccines mm -hmm. so so uh, it, it and and the second feature of the RNA vaccines is that the thing that you actually inject into the arm the the actual physical vaccine is not something that induces an immune response against the vaccine itself, just against what the vaccine uh, uh, ends up putting in the body, which is the spike protein. So the way the RNA vaccine works, it doesn't immunize you against spike, the protein. It, it gives you the messenger RNA, the, the information in the form of messenger RNA that gets into cells and programs cells to make, to make the spike protein. <coughs> But there's nothing in the vaccine, physical vaccine itself, which is RNA inside a, uh, a membrane, uh, an artificial membrane. Uh, that, that RNA inside the membrane, there's nothing in there that should be provoking an immune response against that itself, against the RNA or the membrane that surrounds it. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there were an, uh, an adaptive immune response against that, 
then you might not be able to use that same type of vaccine for a second or third pandemic or, or infectious disease because the immune response against it would prevent that vaccine from actually successfully delivering its RNA into a cell. Uh, but that's probably uh, that's probably not tr going to happen with this kind of, of vaccine. Whereas almost all the other vaccines, there's good reason to suspect that they couldn't be reused indefinitely. But the RNA vaccine looks like they should be able to be reused in indefinitely. So what uh, is our body's responding to when we have a sore arm or we have somewhat of a, a reaction, so to speak? So you're, you're responding in two ways to, to that. When the RNA gets into a cell, um, you're not responding directly to the vaccine itself. So when the vaccine successfully delivers its RNA into a cell, when the RNA uh, enters the cell, the RNA is recognized as something that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is by not the very powerful adaptive immune system like antibodies, not like that, mm -hmm. but the, it's called the innate immune system. Uh, so this is sort of generic. These are a bunch of sensors that sense generic patterns of molecular patterns that are characteristic of broad classes of pathogens. And so we have sensors in our, our innate immune system um, include sensors that recognize RNA in places where they shouldn't be. <laughs> mm. And when the RNA enters the cell, it's in a place where there shouldn't be an RNA in a healthy cell. Ah. And, and, and that triggers this uh, innate immune system. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a, probably a major contributor to the soreness, especially the soreness that arises pretty quickly after you get your, mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you have the, if your arm is sore that night, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that probably is due to the innate immune response to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, when the spike protein is made, then that induces an adaptive immune response that uh, reinforces these innate immune response, that uh, cascade of an interaction between the adaptive immune response, antibodies, and other immune cells that are specific, highly specific for the coronavirus, the spike protein in the coronavirus in this case. Uh, that interacts with the innate immune, uh, immune response, which is highly nonspecific. Uh, to enhance the and 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 accelerate the adaptive immune response, and that's necessary for a really effective vaccine. All effective vaccines need to uh, stimulate the uh, <clears throat> the innate immune response. Uh, but most vaccines, uh, you ha you have to supplement. If you just gave spike protein by itself, you have to supplement that with some extra substances that. Uh, in, that uh, stimulate the innate immune response in the vicinity where where the shot was given. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's a, a long way around by saying that there's two aspects, two kinds of immune response. The innate mm -hmm. immune response is there all the time, and the adaptive immune response that's very specific and that only arises once the body encounters the foreign mm -hmm. pathogen-associated protein like the spike protein. Uh, anyway, both of those are uh, responsible for that uh, soreness of the arm and, and so on. And that's a good sign. It's a, it's a sign that that uh, the vaccine is probably taking. And if you had a sore arm, it's a good sign. I, I never get 
sore from any kind of vaccination. So <laughs> I don't have that reassurance, but it's oh. probably working even in me. <laughs> well, well, let's say it is. Uh, so George Smith, uh, we have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, is there some words for our <laughs> listeners or around the world and, and in Columbia, Jeff City area that you'd like to uh, top off with? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, there's any number of, of words, but I'm hoping to see all of you again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still wearing a mask uh, in um, in uh, circumstances, even though I've long since been vaccinated. Uh, I still wear a, a, a mask in many um, settings, but it, it is so good to get out in the world to you know, to like I just had lunch at um, at Main Squeeze, my favorite restaurant in Columbia. Really, <laughs> and <All right>. uh, <laughs> wonderful. And um, and uh, you know, I can hug colleagues and hug friends. Uh, we had a dinner party. <laughs> we went yeah. to a dinner party. Uh, no one was wearing masks. Everyone was vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I it just it's just great to get out in the world again. It's not that I don't. Um, appreciate zoom including the zoom with you dick <laughs> but um because <laughs> i i guess uh, the listeners should realize we're recording this with zoom so we can see each other as we talk <laughs> right on. uh anyway that that that's that's a good feeling um but there's many other things i could say but i guess i'll leave it at that <laughs> that's a good way to end anyway I just want to thank you again. It's uh, great to see you, first of all, face-to-face, and uh, to hear about your journey. This has been uh, a real eye-opener for me uh, to get some other insights into your life and work. So I'll say thank you, and to my listeners, uh, remember, folks, uh, wherever you are, that is your world. So please... Uh, Leave your world cleaner, uh, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care and uh, talk to you soon.